away from Arcadia. We are going to do another one of our book review episodes to pair with our walkthrough of the canon. As we reference these books in the canon, we'll let you know which ones we're getting plot from, and we wanted to do these brief book review episodes so everyone could take a listen, see if it was a book they'd be interested in picking up. Today, it is time again for your anarchist, anti-she hegemony champions to review one of the Book of Houses. So we're going to be talking about Book of Houses 2. I'm here with my co-host, Simon. I know you were all shocked and and stunned at our betrayal when we said nice things in Book of Houses 1. This episode might be a little bit different. I won't say we have nothing nice to say about this book, but it, it was a somewhat challenging read, just so everyone knows what they're getting into for the rest of uh, this episode. So Simon, what did you think overall about Book of Houses 2, Pour l'amour et liberté. This book says in its intro that with David Ardry gone, winter has set in and the noble houses of the unseely court prepare to take their rightful place as rulers of Concordia. Book of Houses 2 covers the three most prominent unseely houses. Each has their own history, ancient betrayals, and plans for the coming winter. So it's a decent sell. But in reading this book, I kept comparing it to the Shadow Court book, which is not the best entry into the series, if I'm going to be honest. It has a number of very obvious typographical errors, mostly confined to chapter two. It's definitely a book. How well did you think this book accomplished its goals? Oh, man, I don't really know what its goals were, if I'm going to be honest. So taking unassumed goal of creating a series of mini Kith books for the Unseelie Houses, for players to make PCs that are darker, edgier, maybe your vampire player at the table who's getting into Changeling and wants to go for that hard edge... It didn't really succeed at that. Reading through these with my player hat on, I had a really hard time figuring out what these houses were actually about. We're going to go through each house individually, the way we did with Book of Houses 1, so you'll get to see the details of that. But I did not get a clear vision of what these houses were about. Certainly not Ileal or Leon, and Valor paints a clear vision. It's just not... There's not a lot there. <laughs> um, there weren't a lot of artifacts. Like, the Leonin chapter had no merits and flaws, and the only treasures were, like, high mythic, the leaders of the house controlled them via political structure treasures. So it ended up reading almost entirely as, this is for the storyteller, this is only for the storyteller. Valor and Ilea were a little better on that front, but they kind of 
fell down in other areas where Leonin succeeded in terms of actually painting uh, a society in the house you could navigate. Like Leonin kind of painted a picture I could navigate it. Idleo really didn't. Valor did. It's hyper militaristic and weird. Like, I just, it, it did not catch me. Well, the problem I had reading this book a lot of the time was that I forgot how uninteresting this book was to me and how hard I'd headcanoned the three houses in it. I found that I had forgotten 95% of what the actual canon for Leonin was because that's a hard chapter for me and there's a really weird repeating element in this book where each of the houses makes a really good case for why their resurgence should have been long ago or why they should have been autumn she but then it pulls back and makes them part of the shattering the she left the earth story even though they just did a really good job of establishing why they should have stayed on Earth. This has that kind of inconsistency problem. Yeah, and with Valor, they even go out of their way and say some Valor joined the Skaha. Like, they even say some of the Valor are Autumn She before the Autumn She were actually really a thing. I mean, I read that, and I only understood what that meant because I had read the subsequent Book of Lost Houses. So clearly there was a world Bible somewhere that went into the details on the Skaha, we'll call it Autumn She Someday phenomenon. Maybe, like, Shining Host actually acknowledged that, but I seem to remember Shining Host not talking about that. Like, it works now, works in that I know what those words mean, it's really weird for me that that was there given when this book was published, though. And you move that forward and, like, try to apply it to C20, and we'll get into how this book really merges into C20 very inconsistently. That just becomes very hard. There are a lot of things in this book like that. So the first house they really get into in this book is House Ileal. The subtitle for this, this house could probably be Ilunid, but more confusing and more boring. And part of that is because this book intermittently, but mostly uses the early changeling ideas of what the courts were. It, it leans really hard at some points into the, my unseely half is just the damaged addict part of me thing. And Ileal does that less, but Ileal is definitely leaning on that a little bit. And also, this could be a Shadow Court book, because each of these houses goes into great depth about how they interact with the Shadow Court and how many members they have in the Shadow Court. So rolling back a little bit, they have a history for the house. Honestly, it's not as good as Ilunid's history, and that's going to be a theme for Ileal's chapter. It's relatively in-depth, and they make a point of talking about what the commoners of their house were up to during the Interregnum in ways that make sense if you really, really try. And they have that weird sundering story about the she coming to North America, and weirdly the narrator acknowledges that 
Ileel specifically was fucking things up with the Nunahi, but it never really goes anywhere, so I don't know why it's in there. And I know this is one of Victor's biggest complaints about this section of the book. Uh, when you get to the modern period, the, whoever their narrator is, is very careful to note that um, they mostly came back after the Resurgence War, and they have no idea who was behind the Knight of Iron Knives, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. First, I will just say my biggest structural problem with this chapter is it explicitly ignores the Island Ed chapter in the first book of Houses. And something that I've really tried to do for myself as I've looked through White Wolf books is try to get out of the headspace of consistency across books because as I've learned more about what goes into publishing these books, writers do not get paid enough to do expansive research and keep up with the whole line, and you aren't always able to tap writers who are pre-existing experts fans, and you shouldn't need to do that. So, like, until the industry starts paying seven, eight cents a word as a standard, we're not going to get the kind of consistency you get out of, like, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's just not going to happen. That said, Ileel are set up in the canon as deeply interconnected with Islaned, and there are absolutely no hooks from the Island of chapter. It's one chapter in one book, which you could have just put that one thing as required reading, hand that to the writer. I have gotten a few writing assignments now on these books, and that is a thing that happens. It clearly didn't happen here. The fact that this chapter goes out of its way to be like, we have no idea what's going on with King Ardry. We, like, hi, King David, who even knows? And uh, the Knight of Iron Knives was totally a, a Gwydian schlock job. And this is what happens when you repress your unseely nature and it gets the better of you. Like it goes out of its way to say all of these things and to make sure that you are under no impression that Ileel could possibly be involved in any of these things that are all islanded. They're all islanded. The end of the opening fiction even has the main character having been accused of being connected to Ardry's disappearance. And at the end, she's like, oh, well, you know, maybe I was, maybe I wasn't, who even knows? But like she was there in the Kingdom of Willows when it happened. So whoever wrote the opening fiction clearly thought, okay, there could be a hook here. I'll put the hook in. And then the rest of the chapter does everything it can to slam those doors shut and to not actually like build any actual relationship with Islaned in like a lived present and it's like I hear a lot of people say oh I didn't have the word count for it there's so much word count devoted to closing those doors they could have just not mentioned it and there would be more story hooks in here than if they used the word count they used it is incredibly frustrating to read uh, this is one of the chapters that got some merits and flaws their subhouses beg questions that I don't have answers to. Their political impulses beg questions I don't have answers to. Probably the most interesting thing this chapter did for me, that the history section was uninteresting because all she history, except for Skaha, really, is the history of the Mythic Age, the Shattering, and then the Resurgence War, which leaves out most of history like real history where stuff happened. But the most interesting thing to me was a little line they dropped off somewhere where they mention 
Ileal's contacts with vampires, and they very strongly imply that they're epiphanying vampires, which... Just stick a pin in that, because we're going to come back to vampires later, and it's weird. Yeah, I kind of want to mention some of the political impulses and secret societies. The secret societies are... They are what they are. They have a secret society that is their military wing. It is whatever. They have a secret society that's all around courtly love. It exists. They are words on a page. One sec. They have no (laughs) idea what courtly love is. Like, they do not. (laughs) Well. Yeah. Yes. I mean, they have a secret society that's all about love. L'amour. We'll, yeah, we'll just leave it there. The secret society that kind of jumped out at me was the disinherited they do this really interesting thing where they have an oath you can take if you're an oath breaker that gets you out of being an oath breaker like if you take this oath all the penalties from your broken oath are suspended but basically you have to advertise that you're an oath breaker all the time to everyone and bear it as a mark of shame okay I guess. and then they have a whole secret society where these people gather together in solidarity Okay, I guess. But then at the end, there's this whole thing about how they're sinister, even for the ideal. And I was reading it up until then, and I just went, okay, this is, there's a, there could be a story here. This could be interesting. Like, you're trying to escape your broken oath, but, like, you're always on the edge of not quite fulfilling this oath and then being double oath broken. Wouldn't that be terrible? But then, like, sinister. And there's a whole thing in this chapter about their belief that honor is a lie, which that, that's a tenet of the Unseelian general, but the Ileal are really all about that. Not that they believe in being dishonorable, but they think the rules of honor are used as an abusive cudgel. I can get behind that message, by the way. But then they have the disinherited, where like the whole purpose of this oath is to kind of reclaim a little bit of your honor. At least I'm honorable enough to own up to what I did. And the whole sinister line, when the whole premise of Changeling sets it up, is like, yeah, breaking oaths is easy to do. Keeping oaths is hard. We all screw it up. Like, every house founder is basically oath-broken. I think Dougal isn't. Dougal's special. Good for him. But, like, everyone else, like, breaking oaths is the she thing to do if you go back and read the Mythic Age write-ups. I just, I didn't understand this framing. It was so weird. I didn't get why that wasn't, like, a Seelie thing or a Liam thing specifically, because that seems like where you put that. Yeah, I don't totally get that. The other thing, in terms of the political impulses, is they have anarchists written up. And throughout this whole chapter, they, like, walk up to a legitimate defense of Unseelie, a legitimate no- the Seelie are hypocrites, we're actually kind of good guys, you should hear us out. Like, they make good, solid cases, but then they undermine it at every turn they can right after they kind of make a good case. The whole opening fiction is written to accomplish that. They, like, set up this friendship and, like, lay out all of the cases Ileal makes for, like, why actually being on Seelie is kind of good. It's a good case. And then they go, nope, we're not actually like that. This is self-justification. And it's Nah. And then the chapter does it. And when you get to the anarchist political impulse, and I know longtime listeners will be used to hearing me bitch about anarchism in the world of darkness, but it's very clear that the person who wrote this chapter 
thinks that anarchism is like the wild stereotype chaos killing people violence in the streets anarchism that you get in cheap media like that's what's presented but there's still like a sprinkling of fighting for freedom put in there it's like they'd heard peter kropotkin's name and like that he believed in things but let's just keep all the aesthetics from anti-anarchist propaganda and like that mess kind of underlies the whole chapter if you're going to sum this whole chapter up you could do a lot worse than well they had a point until they completely undercut themselves on repeat like you just go through that cycle like five times reading this chapter it's the whiplash is real so the one thing about this chapter that i i like the outline of is if you think about Islanded as the dark Sealy house, the like, the spoiler for all the Sealy, where they are all about order, they are all about structure, they're absolutely Sealy, especially in the newer mold, but they're also absolutely villains, especially if you read Book of Houses 1. There's like the seeding of ideas in this chapter to make Ileal a perfect mirror of that, where they absolutely are unseely they're about actual anarchism like they'd be good actual anarchists actually the way things are seated in here they're interested in undermining seely hegemony because you know maybe they finally realize we can't just go back to the way things were before but the seely hegemony is freaking awful so let's tear it down and actually make something better and do them as like the well-intentioned privileged people that want to change things but screw it up because they're privileged i mean you got to do that story if you're doing the she like there's sprinkles of that throughout this book and every time they like kind of get in that territory they follow it up by oh no but they're super feudal because they're they're she super feudal so much feudalism there's actually like one thing about a lord espousing his anarchist views and i just read that sentence like three times and i went someone doesn't know what anarchism is and like there is this really interesting true mirror of island ed where we are legitimately dyed in the wool unseelie and we're also good guys and a thorn in the side of the other unseelie houses that are really wrapped up in this shadow court thing you have to throw out some canon i don't think it's canon that's worth keeping like there is the outline of a really usable interesting house here but you have to build it yourself so i think Ileal is probably the least difficult of these to update and bring into the C20 understanding of politics because they do have the entire repeat section where they go through this house's specific she interpretations of the Ashit, the Unseely Code, the Seely Code, the Shadow Court Code, and the Ashit didn't change, but the Unseely Seely and Shadow Court stuff all went through minor to major revision in C20. But their house isn't really, as written, particularly interested in any of those things. They make some head nods toward it, and there's this whole thing about them being a majority Shadow Court house. But, like, if you actually look at the narrative, it doesn't matter that much. I will say, actually, if you wanted to use that crazy headcanon pitch I just made, I actually think they flow into C20 better than the way it's written in the book, because in C20, the Shadow Court is 
sort of this fight between a series of revolutionary forces that nestled in the shadow court because there was nowhere else to be and the black court that wants the shadow court to be like the dark terrible thing it was in c1 and c2 and if you were to present the ideal as unseely as good guys you can get with she it would be an interesting leadership opposed to the black court kind of framing while being revolutionary while being imperfect because you know how can you truly lead a revolution when you come from privilege like that's a story i would tell in c20 if you actually kind of want to leave everything as is there are a couple things you have to fix they don't make sense in the c20 shadow court really at all because they're not super dark black court material leona and balor are but ileal really aren't and unless you give them that revolutionary bent they don't make sense in the anti-black court part of the shadow court so i don't know what you do with that you could do them as just a straight up unseely house though and make them part of the parliament of dreams and actually like embed them in just the seely unseely divide and i don't think you'd have to change much if you did like what was in this chapter the next chapter is on the leonin the muses the eternal rhapsodiers and it's in some ways a more coherent chapter than Ileal. In some ways, it's a much less coherent chapter than Ileal. Some of the places I think Leonin succeeds where Ileal doesn't is Leonin does give you a pretty good sense of what society inside the house looks like. You get the different levels of seniority and authority within the house. They're written up in a way where I could see actually navigating it and it being something that a Leonin character had motivations around. They tied their societies and their key characters together a little bit better than Ileal did, but the chapter suffers pretty strongly from having multiple identities. The first third of the chapter, which deals with the mythic age, the sundering, the shattering, and leading up to the modern age, it kind of almost reads like the Leonin are secretly Seely. Like, Leonin herself was presented as this super innocent creature. We talk about this opening fiction a bit in our Mythic Age episode. I don't want to get too far into it because it made me very uncomfortable. But there's a whole, like, oh, she's too innocent for this world. We have to pick someone to take her purity for her. And that story is super fraught. The character who is nominated to rape her i mean a teacher about love ends up being the super good guy at the end of the story kind of and leonin is presented as having accidentally created rhapsody and so being cursed because her rape <clears throat> i mean girlfriend decides she's abominable and has betrayed all fey uh, okay and then the story goes into how Leonin survived for a while doing the Rhapsody thing because she had to, and then eventually she just couldn't do it anymore. She hated destroying humans so much, and she let herself age out of existence, existed forever because fan immortality, so she suffered as this walking corpse, and then finally the house put her out of her misery, and there's a whole thing around that. 
And there are a couple hooks here that like they could have used to transform into a series of motivations. There's a whole thing about don't ever feel regret because look at what it did to our house founder. But aside from that being like a tenant, they don't ever actually explore what that means. There are a bunch of other Leonin, especially as they're presented in that first chapter that really seem to hate what they do. Like they refer to Rhapsody as an abomination, as horrible. And I kind of get the feeling like at one point this writer thought, oh, I should write tragic cursed Seely. But then you go through the chapter and like there's a weird transition in the middle where it's kind of neutral. And then by the end, their mustache twirling bring about the long winter, super unseely, the darkest force in the shadow court. And it's such a strange transition. And they could have done this happened to the founder and it made us bitter. It transformed us and like invested some time in what that did to them and make it a story about the trauma of witnessing the unfairness of that and having it corrupt them. They did not do that. They just like become mustache twirling villains by the end. It's, I don't know what the identity of Leonin is. I don't know whether to believe the emotional framing from the first third of the chapter or the last third. What did you think about this chapter? <laughs> I had a lot of trouble with this chapter, not least of which because, like I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of typographical errors in this chapter. Like with the Ailil chapter, this chapter also does that weird, like, here, I've set a very nice table for you to dine at. Now I'm going to yank the tablecloth out from under it. Oh no, I've ruined everything thing. For example, they talk about how the creation of Rhapsody was the beginning of the Sundering, and how there were many causes of the Sundering, but this was definitely one of them, and then literally one sentence after, they say no one knows what caused the Sundering. Oh, and it's worth noting that this entire chapter, apart from the intro story, is written from the perspective of one of the characters in the intro story, which is kind of a neat device, but... The writer had goals they had to accomplish outside of the intro story that this character was incapable of accomplishing, and the whole thing comes off as contrived, and she's either a moron or a liar, and not a very good liar, because, like you said, the first third of this chapter has one tone, and the last third brings up a page-long sidebar about how they're planning on kidnapping all of the dreamers and all of the childings, which in this period in Changeling were actual children who were Changelings, and murdering them all at the same time to bring on the Endless Winter. And it's like, no, you can't be a sympathetic character and say this is justified. Like, you did not do the work to make me believe that this is justified. It's just very... Like, I don't buy their angsty regrets over having to Rhapsody so much in light of the end of the chapter. It's just, they set this thing up one way, and then they ended another way, and it's so inconsistent that I can't believe the narrator. It's the, it's the low point in the book for me. <laughs> yeah, they do a couple other things. Like, when they talk about the courts for Leonin the courts are entirely framed around the code. Like, when we did Book of Houses, all of the house chapters, maybe except Dougal, spent a lot of time talking about the dual nature of the Fae. 
you have both these things that live inside of you and they're part of your nature. Whereas in Leonin, it was 100%, oh, well, you have to Rhapsody. Don't kid yourself. You're not Seely. You're not following that code. And I just went, what? Like, I understand that codes have grown up as a way to reflect a political affiliation that emerged from this core dual nature of the Fae. Like, I can make that work in my head. But reducing it only to that political reflection just felt really shallow, especially because there's a really fascinating story to be told about, I'm Seely, I want to actually create, I'm totally incapable of it, and so I constantly banality trigger myself to survive. Because you would if you were a Seely Leonin. You age out of existence, or you suffer the banality of the thing you do. They could have done a really interesting, like, side flaw where being a Sealy Leonin is so awful because you don't roll a chance for banality when you Ravage or Rhapsody. You just take it. So it's age out of existence or just suck on the banality teeth, kiddo. Like, that would have been beautifully tragic, which I kind of feel like Leonin was supposed to be that, but they didn't do that at all. And by the end of the chapter, they kind of go back to acknowledging the dual nature thing, but it's after writing as though it doesn't exist for like a whole page when all of the good story for the courts and Leonin requires leaning into that part of the dynamic. It, it's just a huge wasted opportunity. And C20 really changed the way House Leonin worked. Like, I think in, in second edition, they were not really intended to be player characters due to that rhapsody to stop yourself from rapidly aging thing. I have to admit, I'm not entirely sure how to change them to fit into the C20 landscape. This book is 110% committed to the rhapsody metaphor. And in C20, their flaw is rewritten, so they just have to epiphany all the damn time. But, like, even musing will stave off their aging. Ravaging staves off their aging pretty effectively. And then Rhapsody is, like, a get-out-of-jail-free card for a few months. And that is such a softening of the way their flaw worked that this chapter basically doesn't apply to C20. I mean... In first and second edition, you aged a year, I think, every week you didn't Rhapsody. And then when you Rhapsodied, you got a number of years back, I think, equal to the glamour you earned. So at equilibrium, you probably had to Rhapsody every couple of months. That's not sustainable. Like, the Leonin would be found out in a hot second. But if you scale that up to you age a year every month, then your equilibrium point would be Rhapsodying, like, once a year, which is still horrible. The utter hollowing out and desiccation of a dreamer once a year is still a huge deal, but it makes it possible to hide as one, and I think if you change the flaw in C20 and kind of go that route, everything in here could still work. The cultural emphasis on Rhapsody still makes sense, but unless you're willing to make that change, this chapter basically doesn't apply to C20. They dedicated a fair amount of word count to Leonin's accidental tendency to create Dantain, 
And because of what Dante became in C20, that's gone now, which is sad because that at least was an interesting story dynamic. I would agree with that. The other thing with Leon and C20 is they devote some word count in this book to the Leonin shattering conundrum and going back into the dreaming and not having any dreamers to feed on and getting incredibly old as a result and not dying because they're in the dreaming. They don't really talk about how they return. They basically say when we come back, we almost all like took up child bodies. So we had as much head start on our curse as possible. And I'm like, okay, so just like, wrapping yourself in a human erases that aging thing. It was weirdly framed. And they did say some Leon and stayed behind and of course died because autumn. She wasn't a big thing with the introduction of the autumn. She as a more general concept that almost all Liam and Skaha had, but a spattering of she from the other houses chose to go down that road. If you actually look at the Leon and motivations, they'd probably be an almost 100% autumn house. Like, they can't live without dreamers. The shattering, the interregnum, that pales compared to the horror of going back to Arcadia for them. And that's directly acknowledged in this book. So you have to decide how you're going to thread that needle, which it's interesting that C20 chose not to acknowledge that because even the softened flaw in C20 still requires epiphany just as much. So that dynamic is no less in the way they're written there, but they still ran away to Arcadia for reasons. Some of the things I did like in this chapter, the NPCs were actually pretty interesting. They list someone who has a very well-described political dynamic in the Parliament of Dreams and the House, and they set these people up in a way where I could imagine running into them. I could imagine their actions mattering. And I did appreciate that. Of the three chapters, I think this one had the best infrastructure to be a usable game artifact. The last Unseelie house in this book is House Baylor. Probably the one I have the most intricate headcanon for, so this is a little bit difficult for me. The intro story was a page, which is kind of a nice break from Ileel's intro story. But at this length, and with as little as it does, I'm not really sure why it was there. Their history is a really good primer on the major thrusts of the invasion cycle, if you've never read it. Otherwise, there's not a whole lot to say about it. They do seed a little bit there, where they infiltrated House Skaha during the Shattering, and just straight up say that there are Balorians who don't know they're Balorians hanging out in House Skaha as, well, in C20, Autumn She, which is interesting. I don't know what to do with it, but it's interesting. Once the Accordance War hits, this book does a little retcon where they talk about how House Baylor's members came back inside other houses and fought in the Resurgence War, which puts them coming back to Earth earlier than a large number of other texts say the Unseelie Houses did, which is interesting. I think it was more an afterthought than an intentional thing, but it's still interesting. And then once they were established on Earth, they decided to start making changes. They started making 
or reviving uh, connections with the Black Spiral dancers. They investigated the femori. They tried to get some politicians into the Parliament of Dreams as bad faith actors to put a spanner in everything. And they have this whole conspiracy that stretches across a couple of their subhouses that revolves around strangling the Trod network while looking like they're the good guys, which I think is super interesting. But it's all orbiting around the we fucking hate the Tuatha and the she are their children, so we hate them too. And the commoners are just a bunch of idiots, so we hate them too. Boring core of the house. Of the three chapters, this is the one that at the very least is the most consistent. If you really dig the unabashed, mustache twirling kind of Fomorian bad guys, if you want the I hang out with black spiral dancers and Fomori and I'm just here to fuck up your world, then actually, like, this chapter accomplishes that. I like the write-up on the backstory it's very straightforward invasion cycle there's no deviation so none of it really thrilled me there wasn't a new experience there it was just a a decent dish rewrite of that it just didn't feel to me like there was a lot else going on like they're super militaristic they're deep in the shadow court which at this point is basically the same thing as the c20 black court and uh, they hate the other she, but like we hedge on that a little bit here and there. It's like there's yeah, nothing the only really like yeah. interesting thing they had going on was oaths are a big part of their house apparently, but it's really vestigial. Like they keep telling us that oaths are super important to House Baylor, and their example oaths aren't great. They're not bad, but their house adoption oath which is supposed to confer their house's flaw and benefit, they go out of their way to say that most people who take this oath cut off a pinky finger or a toe, and that's their disfigurement. I have quotes around that because I'm not super happy with that word here, but whatever. That's not actually like a meaningful disability. I, I can't name the number of things in my life I can do without having a pinky finger. There are so many of them. And it gets around the whole point of having a house flaw. And they pride themselves on oaths, and they made one this easy to get around. They could have done this thing where they're like half-cunning legislators and half-berserkers, and that would have been way more interesting. It would have been kind of like a counterpoint to House Skaha. But they're really just first-generation Trek Klingons. Especially having them as saying oaths are so important to them, that also kind of brings up something else this book does overall, at least Valor and Leonin both do it, and that's acknowledging she jumping houses. Leonin goes into it in great deal, saying, oh, there are a bunch of she that just can't wait to come over here and join our house. I do not understand that with that flaw, but apparently it's a thing. And Valor, it doesn't spend as much word count on it, but it acknowledges, like, this oath of adoption applies to she who joined the house. Maybe I'm just missing it. I don't remember that in the first book of houses. I remember new membership primarily being about commoners joining. 
there are all of these odes when you join a house and you apparently pick up the house flaw. Liana acknowledges that too. In Valor, it's a literal, you have to maim yourself, although pinky toe, whoop-de-doo. But like, what happened to all your oaths from the other house? They don't talk about the process of a she leaving their other house. The dreaming doesn't tend to forgive your old oaths just because you took new ones. It's this huge, interesting story point about, okay, cool, like, let's explore what it actually means to change houses. And they literally write it up as though, no, you don't have to do any of that. It's not just that they, like, leave that white space for you to fill in. It's actually written like that doesn't matter. And I'm really uncomfortable with that. The sub-houses in House Baylor were a particular point of ire for me. Some of them are just poorly themed. Why are the eyes of Baylor spies when we just spent the entire history section talking about how the eye of Baylor was Cyclops's like pew-pew beans? That's not spy to me. They mentioned that the Masters of Dance the Black Spiral Dancer adjacent part of their house, needs regular infusions of glamour to avoid falling to banality. I don't know why they're not House Leonin. And the way builders are a really, really gross story about end-of-life care and euthanasia that doesn't make sense here because, like, it's all framed around oh, now you're old and infirm in addition to being disfigured, so you're useless. Let's burn you on a pyre. I can't imagine that a house that is good at O's and really good at military stuff couldn't find a use for old people. But this is here. And I actually read their stereotype section, unlike the other ones, because the stereotype sections are often the worst part of these books. And this one is interesting in one way only it belongs in graceful wicked masks or exalted fair folk like the attitudes are perfect for those two books and really weird for dreaming i have to admit i did not read the stereotype section i scanned the stereotype section in ileal and leonin i did not go through it in valor i did read the secret societies and I did find the whole euthanasia thing to be really not okay, which kind of gets into how do you bring Valor into C20. C20 goes out of its way to get rid of ageism in the main structure of Changeling, so that secret society's got to go. Like, we didn't do all that work to make the seemings about a point of view so we don't have to say old equals bad to introduce this. C20 doesn't really talk about the Balor thing at all, like High King Balor of the Fomorians. It does the whole Red King thing from Denizens. So the fact that this chapter really goes all the way in on the invasion cycle myth kind of puts Balor in a weird place. I feel like taking a looser approach to the you partially have Fomorian blood and taking a much less 
unseely equals bad approach and more like a tormented mixture between nightmare and dream like don't make them Thalane this chapter also has a weird thing where it says that Valor can't have a Seelie nature. They're all they're always double unseelie, which is a Thalane thing. And then the player template has a Seelie nature. I mean, player templates in the source books were rarely rules accurate, but in this case, it's particularly egregious because it's so emphasized on theme. I think the way that the Thalane were restructured to be explicitly nightmare and only barely tied to the too often seemings really puts the whole framing for Balor in question. I kind of feel like they just need a total reinvention to have a place in C20. Getting them into C20, really, it feels like the path there is tied up in making a whole new interregnum narrative for them, which is one of my pet projects. But there's that whole thing where they hid themselves in House Skaha. And in order to do that, they had to do what Skaha did. There's an interesting story you could put there about them like existing during the Interregnum as one of the two secret houses of the Shi, just working towards a completely different goal than Skaha was. But that is a really heavy lift for a storyteller. There isn't a good you just need to change this one thing about C20 and these two things about this book to make Valor fit. Unless the thing you're changing is that they are storyteller characters. Because as written, they might work as storyteller characters. I honestly like the idea of Valor, at least a larger percentage of Valor, staying behind during the Interregnum. But unlike the Liam and Skaha really staying hidden and attempting to manipulate this long winter. I think they make really good villains, but I don't really know how to make them player characters, and I don't know quite what to do with them in a modern C20 setting. One more note, the back page of this book says that there's a new art in here. If you find it, please let us know. Just like the new art in Pour l'amour et liberté, the points are made up and the score doesn't matter. Which era of Changeling do you think this book fits into? It's an art house book. I think technically in terms of publication date, it's probably like that era 2.5. It's actually kind of written like it's era 1 which is interesting. It goes back to the story from that opening fiction of the Shadow Court book, and it really triples down on that we're trying to bring about the long winter and make sure we're the only ones who can survive it thing, which is interesting. I, I like that story more than the rest of what the Shadow Court book did. I don't love how they approached it here, but yes, I'm not sure. I If I didn't know when it was published, I'd say Era 1, Publication date, Air 2, 2.5. It's kind of a weird outlier. Yeah, when I was thinking about that, like theme and like story elements wise, it's got a bunch of the first era and a bunch of the second era, and it like varies from chapter to chapter just what that mix is. I mean, I guess I'm going to tentatively call it 1.5, even though that's our metaphor is breaking down here. <laughs> 
This book doesn't really have much crunchy system in it. There are sample oaths, somehow specific merits, some unstatted treasures that you're really unlikely to run into anyway as a player. So I don't know if this category is relevant. Even among the treasures, a fair number of the treasures are like high mythic things wielded by the house rulers. And they have systems, but they're clearly meant to be loose storyteller fodder systems. There's so little here with an actual system block. How cohesive is it with other dreaming products? Uh, this one's kind of complicated, because, like, of the time, it fit in better. With C20, with the new court definitions and the house tweaking and all that, this book has a considerable amount of lift you have to do to get it to mesh with C20, I think. Yeah, I agree. Considerably more than you had to do with Book of Houses 1. I would say if you're running second edition, I'd give it a four. It's not perfect, but my frustrations with this book are mostly thematic and just like missing story opportunities or contradicting itself. These are unseelie elves. You can put them with your seelie elves. They can fight each other. Like everything works. For C20, I'd kind of give it a one. You can mine it for a few ideas, but those ideas won't even be fully formed thoughts already. You're going to have to do all the work there. Is this enjoyable reading? I did not find it to be. The least subjective element of that is the weird typographical errors. Like I said, the Lawn On chapter is the worst. I don't know if it's just like my copy of it, but like it replaces, I think, every comma with an Aesop, which is really strange and something the editor should have caught. Baylor has a couple of formatting errors, but it's not like out of line with other White Wolf quality books. The writing is middling to bad most of the time. So like, it's not bad enough to be a one, but it's not good enough to be a two out of five. It's like a 1.5-ish out of five for me. I'd give it a two. I mean, one for me is the first Fairfolk book. This book was considerably less frustrating for me to read than Denizens. And Denizens was considerably less frustrating for me to read than Fairfolk. It's it's a two. Valor especially is not terribly interesting, but well enough written. Like, that whole opening on the invasion cycle is a nice dive in if you don't know the invasion cycle and you don't want to have to read more academic or arcane texts. So the aesthetic value of the book is actually one of the places where it does pretty okay for me. The only place I really wanted to tear my eyeballs out was the Ileal chapter, because they did this weird, like, white guy trying to do manga-style art, but none of the proportions are quite right, and it just looks kind of weird in a Changeling book anyway. It has a an exalted taste to it almost, but it's not as competent as exalted art. The rest of the book, the art's totally fine. It's just that one chapter, something went really wrong for me. So like overall, like as a whole, this book is like a two to a three, maybe a high two. This is an artist that I recognize from Exalted, and they do have a very manga style that I 
really don't like in Changeling. I've never liked it in Changeling. It's very difficult to not see it and think about the Japanese concepts it invokes, and it just feels very out of place. It's well enough drawn for what it is. It just doesn't feel right. I really liked the art in Leonin. It's an artist that's very dreamy, not particularly detailed, but intentionally so. I think it's all watercolors. Might be India ink. I really liked it. And then Balor is... Similarly, like, it has kind of a dreamy feel to it. I really, really like the art in Balor, actually. I don't know. I kind of, I can't give it one number. Like, it's so different. I'd give Ileel a two, and I'd give Leonin and Balor maybe like a 3.5. But I can't give those chapters the same number. Okay, and if you had to give this book a one-sentence review, who should buy this book? Why should they buy this book? If you really like... The Unseelie is Villains, and you're running second edition by this book. I'm, I'm going to break the rules and do two sentences. If you need a very simple, easy-to-read primer on the invasion cycle, read Baylor's chapter in this book. If you really like House Ilunid, you might like the Ileal chapter, but you probably won't. Well, that was our review of Book of Houses 2, Pour l'amour et liberté or however you say that in French. I'm sure my French pronunciation is terrible. Thank you for listening. If you feel very strongly about our opinions, we have a comment section. We might even read them. And we hope that you'll join us for the next episode.